such a happy time that most people do not see or understand God's preparation for Christmas. So in today's passage, Isaiah chapter 5, we see God's growing preparation for Christmas, for the coming of Jesus. But it's not what people expected, though they should have and we should have. It wasn't God getting wrapping paper out or sending off his cards. It wasn't uh, preparing for the birth of the child by organising a donkey or getting the uh, Bethlehem set up or, or anything like that. It starts with a sad song, verses 1 to 7. I mean, it's, verse 1 and 2 speaks of God as one that Isaiah loves, who builds a vineyard, produced gapes, that was the aim. And over the page, verses 3 to 6, we see, or we hear, God speaking to Judah and Jerusalem, asking them to agree with his verdict. His verdict that he should destroy the vineyard because of its failure to produce grapes. Isaiah 7 makes it explicit. Chapter 5, verse 7 makes it explicit that the vineyard is Israel and Judah. And they have failed to produce the grapes that he sought, the grapes of justice and righteousness. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This sad song is then followed with two woes and a pronouncement of judgment. The two woes are found in verses 8 to 10, and then secondly, verses 11 and 12. Uh, verse 8 is the woe on the materialist ever gathering more and more houses and homes to get a bigger and bigger estate, but who will lose everything. In verses 11 and 12, the second woe is to the party-goer, the drunk who has no respect for God and no respect for time as they get up early to chase wine and they stay up late still chasing it. And therefore will come the judgment of verses 13 to 17. Verse 13, my people will go off into exile. Verse 15, man is humbled and brought low. Verse 16, the holy God shows himself in his justice. And but this sad and sorry picture is not all. It's followed by four more woes and even more judgment. Verses 18 and 19 speak of the woe to the unbelieving liars who challenge God to act. Verse 20 speaks of the morally perverted who see good and call it evil and who see evil and call it good. Verse 21 is a woe to the arrogant, to the men who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to the big drinkers, the heroes in grog, who are villains in justice. And so, therefore, the chapter finishes in verses 24 through to verse 30 with an even more extended view of judgment. Judgment that will be quick and sure and devastating like a fire in the hay, in the straw. For they have rejected the law of God and despised his word. Look at verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame... So their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For 
They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And so judgment will come. And it will come from the angry God, verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And it will come in the terms of warfare. We know historically in terms of the Assyrian invasion that took place within a few years of this prophecy being prepared. And so the picture that comes to us in verse 26 through to 30 of the invasion with this particularly terrifying description of the military order and power of the army. Verse 27, here the invading armies described, none is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. They roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none to rescue. It's a terrifying picture of the invading army of the Assyrians who came and destroyed the ten northern tribes of Israel and decimated the two southern tribes of Judah. This whole chapter is really sad and yet it's the preparation for Christmas. It's the preparation to warn us about the time when people would walk in darkness and yet see a great light. For there was a coming of the child, the son, upon whom the government will rest on his shoulders. That's just a couple of chapters away from where we are, that famous prophecy of chapter 9 that we read in every Christmas time, as we should, for it's the preparation, God's preparation for Christmas. But of course, we just get the last little tidbit of the darkness and burst straight into the sun. But if you've never seen the darkness, you will not appreciate the light that God brings with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it so sad, this chapter? Well, first and foremost, because of love. For Isaiah, in verse 1, loves the Lord who has planted his vineyard. One of the problems with love is that it opens us up, doesn't it, to deep hurt, pain, sorrow. That's why some of us are so unwilling to love and so keen to avoid commitment and hold ourselves into ourselves because it's a protection. It of course robs us of life but there's the problem as we open ourselves up to life and to love so to pain. For Isaiah it is sad to see God's bitter disappointments as it should be for us as it is for any prophet. But secondly, it's sad because the expectation of the fruitful life and society of justice and righteousness, of a city that would be different to all the other cities, of a nation that would be different to all the other nations, is so bitterly disappointed. All farmers, all gardeners are optimists. They plant, they plant their vineyards with great expectations for the future crops. And that's what makes failure so sad. If we're a little bit more pessimistic, we wouldn't be so disappointed. If we're really pessimistic, we wouldn't bother planting, would we? It's like a fisherman. 
if you're not a gardener or at all or a farmer at all and you're a fisherman, it's the same principle, isn't it? You have to be an optimist to go fishing, which is a little bit mad, but that's the nature of it. The failure to produce the crop, the grapes of justice and righteousness, is so disappointing. God's people fail so miserably. He wanted them to be his so that people would see the nation and say, that's Yahweh's nation. Look how different they are. Look how wonderful they are. Look what a wonderful God they've got. They looked at Jerusalem and they looked at Judah and they said, well, there's no difference to them and anybody else. The result was disastrously disappointing and sad. Instead of justice was bloodshed. Instead of righteousness was the outcry of the offended. And so the result of this vineyard is destruction. No grapes, so pull out the grapevines. What's the point? Remove the vineyard. Let the land be overrun once more. How sad for those who love the owner of the vineyard and who feel his pain and share his disappointment. And so as we read Isaiah, we ask, well, why is there such a woeful passage of time occurring in the history of Israel? Especially, how is this preparing God's people? How is this God's preparation for Christmas? Well, the symptoms of a woeful society are all too apparent here. Look at it, for it is a woeful society. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. You've got rid of all your neighbours, haven't you? Woe to the mindless hedonists in verse 11. Those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink and who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. I live next door to a pub. That's a, that's a classic description of the Piermont Bay Hotel, I can tell you. It's there every morning, it's there, it doesn't matter how late at night I go, there are drunks there, doesn't matter how early in the morning I get up, there are drunks there. Or the deceitful blasphemers in verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of, of falsehood, who draw sin with cart ropes. Or the perverted moralists in verse 20. Those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Or the arrogant intellectuals of verse 21 who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight, and the corrupt drunkards of verse 22, who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, but who accept the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of their right. Here is the description of any pagan city, any pagan society. Here is a description of our own wonderful fair city of Sydney, where greed is good where beer barons own politicians, where sexual immorality is promoted as a good thing and where gambling interests have corrupted our government, where the 1950s and 60s intellectuals famously known as the Sydney Push still powerfully push their agenda of degeneracy upon us all. Isaiah writes of something more than the, these symptoms, though, he writes of the disease that lies behind these symptoms. He writes of God's society, God's city, that sadly recounts 
that they have the same disease as the pagan cities around them, a disease that gives rise to all these symptoms. A disease that shows, verse 12b, you'll notice, they have no regard for God. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. And so they're taunted to God in verse 19. Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. Do you remember the words that they taunted Jesus with when he was dying on the cross? You know, come down from the cross, then we'll believe you. You saved others, save yourself, then we'll believe you. Come on God, show yourself, then we will believe you. It doesn't change. Because verse 24, the second half of verse 24 they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Here again, we cannot help but think of the wickedness of our fair city, the corrupt politicians and police, the terrible injustice of divorce and poverty, gambling and drunkenness, the arrogant nonsense of the chattering classes dismissing God and his works and God and his word. Wickedness is the symptom of the terrible disease of turning away from God. The symptom, all these antisocial activities that you can read about in the paper every day. The disease, the rejection of God, which the Bible opens up for you to see in the symptoms of our city. That was Judah's disease, that was Jerusalem's disease, that is Sydney's disease, that is the Anglican disease, that is the human disease, rebellion against God and his word. And Isaiah's prognosis is what he gives when he talks of God's people failing. Judah, Jerusalem, they will not be spared. And they weren't. Because they are God's people, they will not be spared. It's just the reverse of what you may expect. You might say, well, they're God's people. Surely they will be spared. That's what they thought, but no, just the reverse. It is because they were God's people that they couldn't be spared. The people who are godless, you expect to act in godlessness. But the people who are God's people were supposed to be different. And they were the ones who had failed so miserably. Sinfulness is woe. It's woeful, carries its own bad consequences. But Isaiah's prognosis is not just the normal consequences of sin. Isaiah points to God and his actions against sin. For Jerusalem and Judah are his special vineyard. And his holiness was supposed to be displayed there by his people. And so he is angry with his people at the beginning of verse 25. You see, He's the one who calls up Assyria. Verse 26, he will raise a signal for nations afar off and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. God didn't lose control when Assyria flooded across Israel and destroyed it. God called upon Assyria to do it, as we'll see in the coming weeks in Isaiah. It's his holiness that will be displayed. For it is his anger that will bring justice. So given the woeful consequences of sin and sinfulness, and given the holy 
God's anger over sin. The prognosis of Isaiah is destruction. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter 12, we read of Jesus' parable of a vineyard. It was a biting, pointed parable that the hearers understood only too well was about them. They knew it was about him that they'd told this parable and so they sought to arrest him. It was a parable different to Isaiah's but reminiscent of its main point. He didn't call it God's vineyard. He didn't have to really. The owner of the vineyard built and established was just as God did on Isaiah 5. And those who are Bible readers would immediately recognize what's being said. I mean, if I were to tell you today the story of a young man who ran away and lived amongst the people, you know that I'm referring to the prodigal son, if you know anything of the Bible. Well, if you knew anything of the Old Testament, as presumably Jesus, uh, the leaders of Jerusalem should, the reference to someone planting a vineyard and expecting fruit, Isaiah 5 stands out as one of those very clear passages. But the action of the parable is the repeated and climactic failure of the tenants and the final judgment that befalls them. And they fail to pay their rent or to respect their owner's servants, just as Israel repeatedly failed to produce God's crop and repeatedly failed to listen to God's prophets when he sent them. But the climax comes when the tenants fail to receive or respect the owner's son. And instead of heeding his message, they killed him. So Jesus leaves no doubt as to how this failure is resolved. Uh, The owner, well, he'll come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Just as Psalm 118 predicted, the stone that is rejected will become the cornerstone of the future. So here are these two parables that stand in the Old and the New Testament, very similar to each other, slightly different to each other. They're different and yet the same. Different because in Isaiah's parable, Israel is the vineyard. In Jesus' parable, Israel's leaders are the tenants. But they are the same for in each, God has established his people to bear his fruit. God's people have failed and God will judge and destroy. What the parable is about is exactly the same, old and new. And this warning of God works at two levels. Firstly, it works at the level of God's plans. Isaiah expected and predicted, just as Jesus did, that the sinfulness of the nation would find resolution in judgment. That Israel or Judah, the nation as it was constituted, would not inherit the kingdom of God, but the remnant, the true believers, would. For you and I, this is not such an extraordinary idea. But for the chosen nation who understood their identity as being God's nation, the idea that God's kingdom would not be their nation was blasphemy. That couldn't be the case. But Isaiah predicted it. Isaiah kept on saying this nation will be destroyed and only a remnant will remain. 
Only this remnant of believers will be saved. That was Isaiah's message. Chapter 5, why? It's just about the destruction. God said that the kingdom would not become the kingdom of God. That the kingdom was coming to the remnant. But notice the kingdom was coming to the remnant through dreadful suffering. That's how it was coming. The cross should be no surprise, for it was the plan of God. God was preparing his people for the coming of his son. Isaiah was just another one of those messengers coming to the tenant, warning them what would happen, calling upon them to turn back to that one who created them in the first place. And so Isaiah's message would be rejected, just as all the other messengers were rejected. And when the son finally came, indeed they did kill him, just as Jesus predicted. The scoffing and mocking of Jesus, the rejection by the Jewish leadership by the nation as they handed him over to the Romans for execution was all part of God's predicted and prophesied plans. For Israel had turned justice into bloodshed and righteousness into outcry. So that as we sing our Christmas carols with joy, happiness, exultation and pleasure, we always have to see in the birth of this son, it was Israel's last chance to accept God's ownership. And it was Israel's certain assured failure to accept him. And therefore we should expect that there would be no room at the inn. We should expect Herod's mad massacre of the little boys of Bethlehem. We should expect the pain that would enter Mary's heart and the cross that Jesus would bring. We should expect that Christmas would end in Easter. For that is how we've been prepared by God to welcome the Messiah. Secondly, the warnings work at another level. That is our response. Because God's judgment begins with the family, his family, which now is his church, with us. We're called to be his holy people. We are to bear fruit. Just running quickly through the New Testament, I dug out this, it only took me about five minutes, this bit. I'd like to tell you it was three hours of hard work, but it's just five minutes because it's all over the New Testament. We are to be bearing fruit to sanctification and life in Romans 6. We are to be bearing fruit to God or for God in Romans 7. The fruit of God, Spirit, produces in us is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is what God is at work in us to bring out of us, to produce in us. The fruit of light that we are commended to in Ephesians 5 is goodness and righteousness and truth. So we are prayed for by Paul in Colossians that we might produce bare fruit in every good work. And the peaceful fruit that uh, the God's discipline comes to us is to produce in us the fruit of righteousness and peace and also the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is what God, leave it up there on the screen for a moment or two, this is what God 
has created us for. Just as he set aside Judah and Jerusalem and Israel to produce fruit of justice and righteousness of a society that was completely different, so we have been forgiven by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and born again to produce this fruit. That is what we are living to produce. That is what he has made us to show forth to the world. What wonderful things there are, sanctification and life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, righteousness, goodness, every good work, peacefulness. That's what people meeting us should say, you know, they're God's people. Look at the fruit of their lives. They are not like our society. They are not like our city. It might be the cathedral city of Sydney right here in the centre of the city, but it's nothing like the rest of the city because it is full of fruit that you do not see over in Macquarie Street. You do not see over in the media centres of Piermont. You do not see in the drunken debauchery of the evening runs amongst the alcoholics. It should stand out as different. God didn't spare his ancient people who failed him. And so you and I, my Christian brothers and sisters, must take the warnings, for we enjoy a greater salvation than they did. We enjoy a greater covenant than they did. We enjoy a closer personal relationship with God than they did. We enjoy a higher status than they did, and if God did not spare them, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? that is ours. So let it not ever be said on that last day or at any time of us, woe to those greedy materialists whose bank account came before their service of God. Woe to those mindless hedonists whose pleasure distracted them from serving God and his people. Woe to those deceitful blasphemers whose lies about God led them and others astray. Woe to those perverted moralists whose corruption obscures the truth of God's righteousness. Woe to those arrogant intellectuals whose pride prevents them from hearing God speak. Woe to the corrupt drunkards whose violence makes our homes and our streets unsafe. Oh, my friends... Could that ever be a church? Well, clearly, it should never be. Sadly, as an Anglican, it is too all too often. For there is no difference for life within and life outside the church of God's people. May it never be said of us, but rather... Let God find in us holiness, righteousness, justice. As people who revere him, as people who are awed by his works and who are obedient to his word and producing that fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, because God is at work in us to will and to work his perfect will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you 
for this dreadful warning that you gave by your prophet Isaiah to your ancient people Israel. The warning that they ignored and you destroyed. Oh, Father, thank you for in so doing preparing the coming away of your Son that he, through his suffering, might bring your kingdom and that we who put our faith and trust in him might become members of your family. Father, please protect us from taking your name in vain. Please protect us from living in unholiness and unrighteousness when you've called us to be holy and righteous. Please work by your spirit in our hearts and minds that we may be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as your spirit works in us your fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. So work in us, please, Father. Keep us in step with your spirit that we may indeed be seen as your people because of the change that's come upon our lives. That people may see our good works, please, Father, and glorify you, our Father in heaven, We ask these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.